This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Preparing for Interoperability Enforcement, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today we're talking about the challenges of interoperability with Rita Bowen from MRO. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. How are we doing, everybody? Uh, we wanted to revisit a topic we've discussed periodically in Beyond the News, and that's hospital price transparency. There have been some noteworthy developments in recent weeks. One is a few updates to CMS's enforcement protocols. We thought that might be coming since February when agency leaders published an essay basically saying compliance has improved, but still needs to get better. Sean, what's your analysis of these changes? So the policy changes, I would say that CMS is really ramping up to make sure that the non-compliance hospitals, hospitals that are not following transparency rules still to date, 100% need to comply quicker when CMS audits them and finds that they are non-compliant. It, it really is kind of a no excuses approach. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's basically about tightening up the enforcement process for non-compliant hospitals that receive a request from CMS to compile a corrective action plan. For example, there's now a strict 90-day window to come into full compliance, whereas before hospitals could suggest their own schedule for ensuring they're in compliance. Right. So essentially before CMS was approving corrective action plan requests by hospitals on compliance to the rule up to 220 days is what they were seeing an average compliance taking. Now they're saying no more after the corrective action plan is submitted to CMS, which you have 90 days to do. You have 90 days to reach full compliance. Otherwise, a civil monetary penalty will be assessed automatically if you're not compliant, right? Is that what you're seeing and your understanding, Nick? Yeah, no, that's an important point to get across. It, it sounds like penalties will just become more routine than they've been to date for missing that final 90-day deadline or for failing to submit a corrective action plan within 45 days of a request. You know, the new regulations on that civil monetary process even go much farther in saying that for hospitals that have not made any attempt to satisfy the requirements, like those that have not posted machine-readable files or shoppable service estimator tools, CMS will no longer now issue a warning to those hospitals and instead will immediately request that the hospital submit a corrective action plan and then they will be issuing civil monetary penalties much quicker for those hospitals that have blatantly not complied. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, and there's related news on Capitol Hill 
specifically a push to take these price transparency regulations and make them the law of the land, so to speak, through federal legislation. A bill was drafted by the bipartisan leadership of the influential House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, and in recent weeks, a bill has made it out of that committee and is ready for a potential floor vote. Um, it's just a further sign, isn't it, that healthcare policymakers view price transparency as a priority that isn't going anywhere. I would agree, Nick. I mean, one of the things I think most of us saw coming and is very clear in that proposal that's coming out of this is that it looks like CMS will most likely be told to move forward with a standardized format in which those machine-readable files need to be posted by the hospitals now. So that kind of recommended format that's out there by CMS, what hospitals should be using for their machine-readable file format I think we're going to see that or something very similar to that become a standard that needs to be followed in on January 1st of 2024. So for those hospitals that are not using that recommended format, I would say you need to go out and look at that format now to make sure that you see that coming in the horizon and are able to build out you know, a compliant format, probably most likely come around January 1st of 2024. Is that how you read that, Nick? It is, yeah. And that's very important advice to keep in mind that that's going to be an area of emphasis going forward. In terms of penalties in this legislation, right now, the largest daily penalty rate is $5,500 per day. That's for a hospital with 550 beds or more. In this bill, though, it seems like there's no cap on the daily rate. So if you have more than 550 beds, your penalty would go up by $10 per additional bed per day. Also, if you go a year without complying, your penalty automatically would be boosted to $5 million. And that's for any hospital with more than 30 beds. Compared to right now, a full year of noncompliance would mean a fine of between somewhere in the low $100,000 range and about $2 million, depending on bed count. So there definitely would be an added incentive to avoid noncompliance for a year-long duration, which, let's be frank, shouldn't be asking too much. Anything to add on this legislation, Sean? And, and also, I know you had some insight to pass along on No Surprises Act auditing. No, I would agree. I think the legislation really calls out the fact that some hospitals have done, and not very many now, I think most hospitals are complying. I think what, we're, what CMS saw earlier this year when they published the 70% or more compliance with transparency regulations is, I find pretty true to cost. And, and some of my colleagues who look at these files regularly are finding hospitals much more compliant. But I do think it's calling out those hospitals who have done a cost analysis on, you know, showing those the contract and negotiated rates and what showing those or disclosing those to the public could do to their contract negotiations. CMS is kind of calling that out and saying, no longer, we are going to find you more and more if you continue to do that cost analysis and figure out that the lower fines are worth your while to non-comply, that they're kind of taking that out of the equation now. But I don't think that's going to be much of a lift for most hospitals, because I think most hospitals are complying with those machine-readable files and those negotiated rates now. What I'm still waiting to see is the rubber to begin to meet the road on a healthcare payer non-compliance. Because as we've seen, as we've been reviewing those machine-readable files from health plans, we are seeing a lot of missing negotiated rates out there on behalf of payers, even though those are much harder to get to. We have not seen CMS do any activity around finding payers yet. 
And that needs to tick up and we need to see legislation come out. So it is a level and clear playing field. On the No Surprise Act um, note, Nick, what I'm starting to see now is hospitals are being issued letters by CMS saying that we have examples of where your co-providers who are providing emergency services at your in-network facility, they're providing emergency services in the ED, and they are balance billing your patients for out-of-network cost sharing. They are saying that you as a hospital who are choosing to employ or have these physicians, co-providers work in your EDs, you are responsible for this activity too, and they are beginning to issue notices to hospitals with a very quick turnaround, a 10-day turnaround time to get to them your workflows, your provider education, telling your providers that are functioning and providing emergency care services that this is not compliant and they need to stop this activity of balance billing for emergent services. And they are holding the hospitals accountable for this activity that is occurring in their EDs. So that is something that we've seen come about in the last two months. We've seen several of these letters go out to member hospitals, and I wanted to point that out. Well, much appreciation for filling everyone in on that. I think that'll do it for us. Uh, so, So thank you all for listening, and we'll talk soon. The 21st Century Cures Act has moved the healthcare industry toward national interoperability, but implementation of the requirements is a challenge. So today I've invited Rita Bowen, Vice President for Privacy, Compliance, and Regulatory Policy at MRO to break things down. According to Bowen, those who aren't ready have too much work ahead to wait any longer. Enforcement has not started yet. It should have, but there's been a lot of um, delays because of, you know, COVID and, and preparation process. But I am hearing at HIMSS, they did indicate that enforcement likely would start at the end of this year. In conjunction with that, just a couple of weeks ago, matter of fact, it was on Tuesday of the week of HIMSS, they did release a notice proposed rulemaking uh, with some expansion for interoperability as well, expanding uh, in the form of some of the exceptions. So I have not gotten through that entire rule yet. Uh, I will be doing that because response for that will be coming mid-June, I think around June 17th. So if enforcement should have begun, but likely won't begin until the end of the year, how ready would you say healthcare organizations are for that enforcement? If they started tomorrow, would they be ready now? No, (laughs) that's a simple answer to a, a big question. And maybe it's just the audiences that I am speaking with because I have the opportunity and to speak to a lot of HIM professionals. But I did speak last fall to a regional healthcare compliance association group in Nashville. And I thought the response I would receive when I asked them this question would be different than what maybe when I'd asked an HIM professionals. But I said, are you ready? And many of them said, we're not going to do a thing until enforcement starts. Until they tell us we have to, we're not going to do anything. And I just found that a little bit shocking, you know, because I I would think that if I were still sitting in, in my position as an enterprise health information director or in the facility, that we would want to be making progress toward that. But I'm finding that a lot of my peers in the are saying they don't know what's going on, that some of them have said that when, you know, their 
EHR vendors sent out information regarding what could be considered EPHI for that definition, that it didn't even come to them. It went to their IT department and that they haven't seen it. And I went, that's a little concerning because it's not just IT. It's not implementing just a software upgrade. There's got to be the marriage between the two because the IT is just the pipe. It's the Lego connecting, but whatever it's going to take to make that information flow has got to be centered on the definition and assuring that there's data quality. So the thing that I have really stressed when I've had the opportunity to speak with my HIM peers over the course of the spring, you know, during some of the state meetings is that the next big wave is data usability. And that is where they need to be concentrating because if the data is not usable, we're spending a lot of effort and time for nothing. So what what is your recommendation then to those organizations that say, I'm not going to do anything about this until I absolutely have to? Where should they start, especially if if people are confused or they don't have all the information they need? Where do you start with that? Well, first, I think they need to pull back to that definition of what they consider electronic personal health information that would be shareable if they didn't consolidate that definition and it was just a download from their EHR, their electronic health record vendor, they may want to go through that to see what's included because it could include information that the patient is actually uploading into the portal themselves. And that could cause a disconnect because it's not really anything that a clinician or a caregiver has seen. And so therefore it appears and then there's nothing that's going to drive it in a workflow or a push to alert someone of a concern. So you want to look at that and then look at the flow of the information, the flow of the information that you are entering and receiving. Now, some communities have done a very good job. You know, they're meeting as a community, you know, all, you know, different hospitals or, you know, clinicians within a, an area and they're coming to grips with, this is how we want to define this so that when we share this information, it means the same thing. And that's a good place to start. But The biggest thing, I think, for this to work and work effectively is to really get a a grip of understanding how how clean your information is now in your electronic health record, how much duplication you may have. Duplication may be in in terms of identifying a person. So if you've got three Rita Bowens out there and you've got a record for Rita Bowen, you've got one for Rita K. Bowen, and then you have one for Rita Smith Bowen, and we're all one and the same, how does that get brought back into that process. And the other question is really looking at your data usability. And that's that goes back. And I'm I'm an old HIM professional. So I've been in the field since a long time. <laughs> and you know, in and at one point we had what we called our medical record committee or our health record committee. And we were actually analyzing for the quality of the documentation. And I think that that there's going to have to be some semblance of that to come back into into force so that you can look and see how usable that information is. I've talked to a few, but it's it's really a few, just a handful of people that says, oh, we do that. We never stopped. I would say I could count in one hand the ones that have said we still do it. The others are like, no, we don't have time. We're more focused on the revenue cycle. We're focused to this, but we haven't had time to dig down into that. And I think that's going to be a requirement and we should be starting that process now one of the questions that was asked at um, HIMS, which was just a couple of weeks ago in Chicago, was when do you think we're going to start seeing the benefits of interoperability? And 
they did say, well, we don't think you will see it until the end of next year, sometime in late 2023, because, you know, the TEFCA components and some of those, you know, for the that are being approved sort of like, you know, here are the standing operating rules of the road, so to speak, are just now going into enforced enforcement and, and qualifications for people to look at. So the sharing of information probably won't start and really see benefits until 2024. So we're we've got a while to go, but a lot of people just aren't going to move off start until they get pushed. And I think the enforcement date and the enforcement activity would be a push. Interoperability rules become a challenge when patients are crossing state lines for care. One example of particular concern at this juncture in our nation's history is reproductive records. What should healthcare organizations be thinking about there? There has been a notice proposed rulemaking uh, that was released on the Monday of of HIMSS uh, when we were in Chicago. So two were released back to back. And I have started going through that rule. That rule is more focused to the request for information for anyone that's the record contains any information about someone seeking or obtaining or, you know, facilitating reproductive activities. And it only applies in regards to criminal, civil and administrative investigations where you might have sought services in one state where it's legal and it would be being sought from a state that's not legal. So it does impact how we will share information. Does it impact greatly? Probably so, because the problem that reproductive records or reproductive health records, it's mentioned throughout in records, in the narrative. It's not just easy to segment that information to say, oh, I got to pull this out and it won't flow because it may be in multiple places. And, you know, the definition of reproductive health records are kind of wide open. It's not just women. It can also be men. And so, therefore, we got to get narrowed down to the definition there. So I encourage anyone who's listening to read that notice proposed rulemaking. And throughout the notice, they've indicated that they've given thoughtful consideration of how information would need to be shared and how it would flow. And I think it's important that we who manage that information and help get that to consumers as they need it, look to see where this, some of their recommendations may cause problems and report that back. So that notice of proposed rulemaking is due um, June 16th. So we've got the rest of this month and just a few weeks in June to, to really assess it and give the feedback on that. But I really think that it they wanted to level set so that it would sort of take the place of all these various state rules to sort of supersede and uh, go over. And the one thing in the rule that it is proposing is that as long as you are receiving, uh, the requester has to provide an attestation. The requester provides an attestation that they are not going to be using that information for criminal, civil or you know administrative actions. And that's supposed to be your protection that it's OK to release it. but. It also says you're not obligated to validate it unless you see a pattern of abuse or some reason to question it. So I think that kind of puts the ownership of concern back on the person who's providing the information, because what if they say, well, you should you should have noticed a trend or you should have noticed a concern, you know, and it may be easier if those of us who are in the industry of releasing information, because we're going to be seeing it across many states 
versus an individual facility that's doing their own because they may not see a trend until it's too late. So I think that is one way of trying to safeguard it, but I don't know that I totally agree with it because if you remember the attestations we used to have to sign on a claim, the doctor had to attest that the codes were accurate. It meant nothing. They just signed it. (laughs) So, you know, not all physicians would just sign it, but a lot of them just signed it. So I'm not sure that an attestation is is worth much on paper. I just hope everybody that's listening will take the opportunity to read those rules, both the interoperability proposed rule and reproductive, because if, it, you know, many people that I talked to, like when the notice proposed rulemaking for HIPAA came out in 2021, early in that January period, and, you know, it was due, they didn't respond. They said, well, we just won't do anything about that. So. My theory is if you don't speak up, you can't complain. If you at least speak up and try to say, then you can complain about whatever they do. That's their way of giving us an opportunity for input into what they're proposing. Thank you, Rita Bowen, for joining me today. No problem. Thank you. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. I hope to see many of you in Nashville in a few weeks at our annual conference. You can register online at hfma.org. I did that in one take.